we may allow ourselves a brief period of rejoicing. Today is victory in Europe day. Throughout the country, to mark an epoch in the political life of this country. From Stettin in the Baltic to Trieste in the Adriatic, an iron curtain has descended across the continent. If there is anything certain today, if there is anything inevitable in the future, it is the will of the people of the world for freedom and for peace. 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 Dear Celia, I enclose a list with about 35 names. It isn't very sensational, and I don't suppose it will tell your friends anything they don't know. Even as it stands, I imagine that this list is very libelous. So will you please see that it is returned to me without fail? With love, George. By 1949, George Orwell was dying. He didn't know it, but the next 12 months would be his final stand against totalitarianism. Stuck in the Cranham Sanatorium in the Cotswolds, Orwell, real name Eric Blair, was attempting to get over the white plague of tuberculosis. Published 1984, which he had completed by December 1948, and spread the readership of Animal Farm. The old Etonian, who by then had fought in the Spanish Civil War, covered the end of the Second World War from Paris and spent two wasted years, as he would put it, on the BBC Radio's Eastern Service broadcasting to India, often corresponded with his friends and literary agents from Gloucestershire. Some of his old pals from the Home Guard would come and visit and in February he received a letter from a young woman called Celia Kerwin. The attractive socialite one of many women Orwell desperately proposed to after the 1945 death of his first wife, Eileen, had joined a new organisation. Her friends were the higher-ups in the blandly named Information Research Department, a new unit inside Clement Attlee's Labour government. The secretive organisation sat inside the Foreign Office, to be exact, and was co-founded by a psychologically curious minister who would go on to produce anti-Soviet plays for the BBC and take LSD and film. His name was Christopher Mayhew. We went off to the United Nations in September of 47 and found that Bevin and Mayhew and McNeil were being belaboured by the Russians, who obviously had a very large uh, research and opinion-influencing organisation at their disposal. You're listening to the voice of Norman Redaway, speaking to the Imperial War Museum in 1993. Redaway was a diplomat and helped co-found the IRD. Uh, and they really beat us round the head. And uh, Mayhew had the idea that we really must do something to counter this. 
and um, Bevin agreed that it must be went into, and so it was went into by uh, Chris Mayhill, who had the great advantage of having been at the same school and a cricket uh, enthusiast that Clem Ackley had been at Haleybury. And he wrote a paper on the way back from the UN on the Queen Mary, um, the end of 47, which resulted in a thing called the Information Research Department being set up which was a research unit which would supply ministers in the first place with really well-researched uh, material about things like Soviet imperialism, the gulags, which nobody had mentioned before, and uh, so that we could actually have some, uh, um, some counter-say to what the, what the Russians were doing to us. That is, of course, the official account of things. What Redaway failed to mention, probably for obvious reasons, is that beyond the embassy network, the IRD had its own relationship with the secret intelligence service, MI6, and it would distribute some of its product on a non-attributable background basis to journalists and newswires. Paul Lashmer, co-author of Britain's Secret Propaganda War, explains more. What it's using is often sanitised intelligence. And this is interesting because, for instance, if you're a journalist or an academic working in um, covering the Soviet Union or, or its satellites or some of, you know, India or China or wherever, if you've got the, the British government at that time had a fairly large MI6 operation, it's got all the embassies feeding back intelligence kind of documents that ambassadors send back. And one of the jobs IRT's got is they go through all this stuff and they sanitize it. So you don't know where it's come from, but it's really useful uh, basic data on what's going on in these countries. And one of the big things with ILD, one of the things they learned, I think, very much during the Second World War is for falsehood is not a good pro propaganda weapon because you get rumbled. And, and what you do is you, you select the truth you tell. A key man in Britain's new enterprise of selecting the right truths was Adam Watson. He was assistant to the first head of the IRD, Ralph Murray. He recruited Celia and a man called Leslie Sheridan, a former Daily Mirror night editor who was also instrumental in another secretive propaganda organisation, Department DQ of the Special Operations Executive, whose mission was to produce black propaganda and create and disseminate rumours during the war. Watson, with his intellectual background, was also friendly with another IRD contributor, the philosopher Bertrand Russell. He also knew Sonia Brunel, the Horizon Journal sub-editor, who would marry Orwell in October 49. Watson would review the report Celia produced for the IRD after a visit to Cranham in March. Yesterday, I went to visit George Orwell, who is in a sanatorium in Gloucestershire, I discussed some aspects of our work with him in great confidence, and he was delighted to learn of them and expressed his wholehearted and enthusiastic approval of our aims. He said that he could not agree to write an article himself at present or even to rewrite one because he is too ill to undertake any literary work at all. Also because he does not like to write on commission as he feels he does not do his best work that way. This all sounds very official, 
But Celia, who would work as Robert Conquest's secretary in the IRD, had been friends with Orwell since their first meeting in the winter of 1945. Was the twin sister of Arthur Kersler's wife. Dorian Linsky, the author of 1984 biography The Ministry of Truth, explains the relationship more. And um, Orwell befriended Arthur Kersler, who was the author of Darkness at Noon, which is one of the influences on 1984. And he got to know Kersler quite well and spent some time with, with him and his wife in uh, Wales. But Celia was also the cousin of Inez Holden, who was a kind of writer and um, sort of former socialite who knew a lot of people. She was the kind of connection between, she was the person that introduced Orwell to H.G. Wells. And she was this extremely important character and sort of underrated character in in Orwell's life she was the when when he flew back from Paris to London um on his way up to up to the northeast where um where Eileen had died the first person that he visited was was Inez she was kind of you know and he was absolutely shattered and she was the person he went to so he was he was somebody that she was somebody that he had a really close relationship with for several years and she ended up being a regular visitor to to Jura which is a really important figure but I think because unlike some of the other important figures in Orwell's life her own writing um, is less well known she sort of becomes downplayed in the story but she's really important so he kind of knows Celia from two different directions The relationship aside, the fact that Orwell, a socialist journalist, produced a list of alleged fellow travellers and crypto-communists for the British state has caused a considerable debate among the left ever since the act first came to light in the 90s. And to add confusion to the matter, there are two lists. The shorter one Orwell produced for the IRD and a much longer one he kept in a blue notebook. I'm a big fan of Orwell. I grew up with Orwell and, you know, all of that. Paul Lashmer again. But I'm also a lifelong opponent of blacklists. I think if you accuse somebody of something uh, that can impede their career, you have to put it out in the public domain and ask them to, you have to put it to them. They have to have the opportunity to comment. But Orwell wrote this list when ill, so perhaps not the best judgment, possibly clouded by he's given it to Celia, so he thinks he might get something in return, or he's, you know, he's getting, who knows. And he puts out this list of people that he thinks are fellow travellers with varying degrees of accuracy. Uh, but no, not, not, a, a, not a proper intelligence document. And it, I think it's a real failure of judgment of a man whose judgment generally was very good. Lezinki disagrees and offers a defence of Orwell. So he was telling somebody that he was very close to, who worked for a Labour government that he believed in, look, if you're going to hire writers for your, for your purposes, what you don't want to do is hire people who are, who are in favour of the Soviet Union. It's, you know, it's, which, which kind of, to, to, to me, makes total sense. You, you, you're not going to hire people who, whose politics are antithetical to your purpose. And the list was just for her. I'm presumably colleagues at the IRD, and it was for that very specific purpose. So it wasn't a blacklist in terms of trying to cost people work in journalism or the movies or people's books not to be published or anything like that. It was a very, it was a very private thing. It wasn't, wasn't widely disseminated. And 
there's never been, as far as I've been able to find out, there's never been any evidence that anybody's career was adversely affected by this list. And in fact, one of the names on the list was a, um, was a Soviet spy and was not identified as such for decades afterwards. A guy called Peter Smollett. The list wasn't Orwell's only interaction with the Foreign Office in 1949. He also actively petitioned them to provide funds to translate Animal Farm into Russian. I'm also trying to pull a wire at the Foreign Office to see if they will subscribe a bit. I'm afraid it's not likely. They will throw millions down the drain on useless radio propaganda, but not finance books. This effort, as Orwell predicted, came to nothing, and he ended up paying for the translation himself. He did, however, receive a lovely bottle of brandy from Celia for the list in May. A month later, on 6 of June 1949, 1984 was published. And another month after that, in July, he would write to his close friend and the editor of The Observer, David Astor, a wartime intelligence officer who arranged for Orwell to stay on the remote island of Jura, where he finished 1984. Orwell wrote of his plans to marry Sonia, asking David to be his best man. But marriage wasn't the only thing on Orwell's mind at the time. He would also write to Ruth Fisher, co-founder of the Austrian Communist Party and a former general secretary of the German Communist Party, in a bid to find out if displaced persons based in Frankfurt and planning to publish a Russian version of Animal Farm were sound. Fischer had by that time become an anti-Stalin activist, as outlined in her 1948 memoir, Stalin and German Communism. The book came to Orwell's attention via Kohlsler, and he even sent a pre-publication version of 1984 to Fisher. In return, she would send him some chocolates to Cranon. Fisher was another contributor to the IRD cause, and the unit bought and distributed her materials. The other secret organisation the then-American-based Fisher was involved in was The Pond. The Pond was a really unusual American intelligence organization that ran from 1942 to 1955 in various incarnations. Mark Stout is a former CIA intelligence officer. He began studying The Pond during his final years at the agency. He's now a program director at John Hopkins University. And it started out during the war as a part of the War Department general staff, set up by the War Department G2 head of intelligence, basically as a rival to the OSS, which he really didn't approve of, to do espionage for the army, for the War Department overseas. And the decision was made very early on that it was going to be quite an unusual organization in terms of how it did its tradecraft. It recruited, it came to an agreement with the State Department such that it was able to use real, genuine State Department diplomats as case officers and also as sort of, uh, you know, letterboxes at the U.S. Embassy, if you will, overseas. But that also, to a very great extent, and this grew over time, that it would use what the CIA today would call non-official cover. Or, or even, so these were people who were working for the pond uh, who had no visible connection with the U.S. government. So, you know, journalists, uh, international business people, that sort of thing, um, frequently not even American citizens. 
to collect clandestine information and send it back to Washington. The end of the war comes, a couple years after the war is over, the War Department decides that it's basically done with this organization, not, doesn't think it needs it anymore. And the guy who runs it, a man named Colonel John Grumbach, is a real pain in the backside. So they say, thank you very much for your service. You know, we're disestablishing the organization. Grumbach turns around and makes this organization, which by this time is called The Pond, into a private company. And he contracts it to the State Department at the beginning of 1948. So the State Department now is doing espionage on contract, which is not what the State Department normally does. And what made it doubly strange was that at this time, all espionage of this type was supposed to be done by the new CIA. So the State Department was, was doing this very much on the down low. What exactly was Ruth Fisher's involvement with the pond? I'm not sure how she came to the pond's attention, but she quickly appealed to the pond because even though she was very much a leftist and the pond uh, was pretty hard right, at least in his leadership, they both shared a complete utter distaste for Joseph Stalin. And she very quickly fell into this sort of mode of operation where she would basically carry on doing the kinds of correspondence and travel and just sort of keeping in touch with all of her various anti-Stalinist communist and leftist friends around the world. And then she would report back what she received from them in written correspondence or report back, you know, what they talked about in meetings when she go off uh, globetrotting. And this went on for years. And she even over time developed quite a number of subsources, people who she in ways that actually aren't clear to me, uh, recruited near as I can tell primarily, if not exclusively in Europe, to themselves go out and collect information for her, which she would then send back to the pond through the State Department, actually. There is no evidence that Orwell knew of the pond or that the organization tried to recruit him. He did, however, have dealings with the U.S. Army via his literary agent, Leonard Moore. He got 1984 serialized in the German language The Month, a political and cultural journal founded in 1948 in order to promote Western ideals and serve as an intellectual weapon against communism and fascism. The rest of July, Orwell is preoccupied with amplifying Animal Farm and translating 1984, including a Japanese edition. He would even comment on a potential play of his latest book. Of course, I must see this script when and if it is made. Despite being ill and despite being stuck in Cranham, it was all action stations for Orwell. That was until August 1949, when things started to go downhill. He would note of his tiredness and inability to write due to the TB taking hold of him. He moved to University College Hospital London in September, while Sonia took charge of his affairs. The pair, Orwell 46... Sonia, 31, married on the 13th of October with Asta as his best man. A small luncheon was held at the Ritz. Orwell was too ill to attend. From there on, his outgoing correspondence died down. As for the incoming, Aldous Huckley sent him praise for 1984. Orwell would sign his final will on the 18th of January, 1950. He would pass away due to a massive lung hemorrhage just three days later. But even in death, the secret world wasn't done with Orwell just yet. His funeral service was arranged by his friend Malcolm Muggeridge, 
the Telegraph journalist who served as a wartime MI6 officer and would later liaise with the IRD. For its part, the IRD would produce and distribute cartoon versions of Animal Farm. The CIA, initially through its Office of Policy Coordination, would distribute hundreds of thousands of copies of the book. The agency would later part fund an animated drama of Animal Farm. It was released in 1954. A year later, the CIA disbanded the pond. Ruth Fisher would die in Paris in 1961. The IRD continued to grow. It would later be revealed that drunken traitor Guy Burgess, who was sacked by Mayhew, revealed the organisation's existence to the Soviets. Fellow Cambridge spying member Kim Philby would also know about the operation due to his senior position within MI6, an organisation he was recruited into by Leslie Sheridan. The IRD, which had grown to an annual budget of around £12 million in today's money, went downhill from 1974 under Harold Wilson's premiership. It's important to remember this was the period of detente during the Cold War era. It was also after the Watergate scandal. Redaway provides more information. And when Suez blew up, which were, here we are in 1956, um, it was called on really to do something about NASA. And um, of course, you, you can't just switch on uh, 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 an effort against NASA was regarded by as a hero in the Arab world um, and really the uh, efforts uh, around Suez were pretty poor and um, the head of the department gave himself full time on Middle East and Suez and I was given the rest of the department and I must say it was great relief to concentrate on Hungary, which was going at that time, which we really could help over. And um, so uh, uh, the, the Suez business, from our point of view, uh, publicity and propaganda was pretty well a dead loss because you, you couldn't support really convincingly vis-a-vis -vis public and international opinion um, a very a dubious line that Anthony Eden was taking. But I think we learned quite a lot about publicity and General Keithley and Mountbatten uh, drew up a report after it uh, suggesting that we should be much more high-powered in uh, our information and publicity effort and that there should be someone in the cabinet responsible for it. Well, something happened. We did get a cabinet minister as a result of that serious fiasco. But um, unless you have someone like, say, Ted Heath wanting to get into Europe, um, you don't get much backing for what you might call operational research. Um, and um, although we had a glorious time in the early 70s when Ted Heath was determined to do everything he could to get into Europe and influence public opinion. Uh, after 74, it gradually went downhill and was dissolved in, uh, in 77 by the Labour government. But the story wasn't quite over yet for the IRD. Under Margaret Thatcher, the department that never existed made a return, in part thanks to a former IRD freelancer, called Brian Crozier. 
Crozier was a former economist journalist who, alongside Nicholas Elliott, the top MI6 man who confronted Philby, sat on Thatcher's so-called shield committee while she was in opposition. Crozier, as he claims in his memoirs, explained the downfall of the IRD to Thatcher. There was mass industrial unrest at the time, with the winter of discontent in late 1978. Most damaging of all to the government's image was the strike by the refuse men. By the beginning of February, the rubbish was piling up, a disturbing symbol of the state to which the country had descended. Labour had also dropped its list of prescribed organisations, including the Communist Party of Great Britain, in 1973. Crozier argued that the IRD was key to countering subversion due to his experience in Soviet tactics. But the problem was, the IRD no longer existed. But after Thatcher had been voted into power in 1979, the Overseas Information Department was created. When the government was asked about the unit in the House of Commons in 1981, it was revealed that 29 of the 79 staff, more than a third, had worked for the IRD at some stage of their careers. And, after more than 71 years after his death, George Orwell's work still lives on today. All the indications in his notebooks is that he just like wanted to do something else. Now, I, I imagine that he would, because of his fame, if he'd lived longer, he would he would constantly be asked, like, what do you think about the Korean War? What do you think about Joseph McCarthy? And he would probably have, you know, he would probably have shared his views on those subjects. But, but I think he was really interested in, in literature, which was not something that he'd been, you know, which he'd, he'd written about quite a lot in the 30s. Um, but he hadn't really had a chance to write enough about that. And so I think that was where his, that was where his sort of heart was, was leading him, because I think he'd made, he felt like, look, this is my statement on politics. 1984 is everything I've been thinking about and everything I want to say. And now can I write a family saga? I think that if something, I think what it's proven, because there've been all these rival interpretations really going back to, 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 to when it, to almost when it came out. And there's all been all these disagreements, like, you know, like he, he had to issue a press statement to, to, to tell, to make it clear that some American reviewers in week one had misinterpreted his politics and thought that he was an anti-socialist when in fact he was a socialist. So the fact that the book survives shows that it's, it's strong enough. Today I'm doing a book review and the book is 1984 by George Orwell. Today I'm going to re be reviewing 1984 by George Orwell. I finally finished 1984 this February and it was a quite an experience. Today we're going to be reviewing 1984 by George Orwell. Moral and mental glaciers, melting slightly, betray the influence of his warm intent. Because he taught us what the actual meant, the vicious winter grips its prey less tightly. 
Not all were grateful for his help, one finds, for how they hated him, who huddled with the comfort of a quick remedial myth against the cold world and their colder minds. We die of words. For touchstones he restored, the real person, real event or thing, and thus we see not war but suffering as the conjunction to be most abhorred. He shared with the great world for greater ends that honesty, a curious cunning virtue you share with just the few who don't desert you. A dozen writers, half a dozen friends. A moral genius and truth-seeking brings sometimes a silliness we view askance. Like Darwin playing his bassoon to plants, he too had lapses but he claimed no wings. While those who drown a truth's empiric part in dithyramb or dogma turn frenetic, than whom no writer could be less poetic, he left this lesson for all verse or art. With thanks to the Imperial War Museum London, Paul Lashmere, Dorian Lezinski and Mark Stout, please remember to like, share and subscribe this podcast has been produced, edited and narrated by Ian Silvera.